I always feel like that 30 seconds gets longer every time I do it. <laughs> awesome. So we are definitely live and it seems we have one viewer so far. So we'll just wait a few seconds for some people to hop on. I know Facebook does the quick announcement of Siren Sundays is going live. Um, but yeah. So this is also, so most people tune in um, via Facebook? Yeah, I recently, because I still work closely with the TSL group, I recently started kind of separating and trying to build my brand because I want to get into science communication. So I'm hoping, to, I know, it's like, let me follow what I feel like I'm good at. So I definitely, I did a soft launch of my website and I have a YouTube page that I upload it to after the fact. But I'm like, do I want to, am I ready to invest in myself to buy the premium version of StreamYard? Because I know a lot of people, they'll jump on Facebook and watch, but they're also like, is it on YouTube? Like, I don't like going on Facebook. So I definitely, in upgrading it, I can stream in three places at once. And that will save me a lot of post-production time. But wow. yeah, so Facebook, I think the most I've had maybe is about, at one time, 30 viewers. Nice. Which is Decent to me. That's like a, a full studio audience, maybe. I don't know. Yes, of course. Definitely. You know, I, and then no matter how many people there are, if you get one person who is motivated and inspired to to change and to or to act, that's that's significant. Definitely. Okay. Well, we have about three people on, and I know once again the Prime Minister address is happening in less than an hour, so we'll just get on rolling. This is recorded, so anybody who wants to watch later can tune in. Um, welcome again to another episode of Siren Sundays for everyone who is watching. This is season two, episode two. I think I have three there. It's definitely episode two. Clearly, I'm very eager to speak. <laughs> Last season, I did only have about um, three episodes and then a fourth episode as a finale. But yeah, this is episode two, and we have the lovely Dr. Salima Campbell-Hauber. Am I saying the last name correct? Yeah, so Hauber is spelled, pronounced H-O-W. How are you doing? And Burr, like sand burr, burr is cold, yeah, Hauber. Nice, awesome. Looks like someone said like a sad face. <laughs> So awesome. Um, so definitely give a quick overview of who you are and some of the work that you've done. So I am a horticulturist by training. Um, I began my academic studies, um, tertiary education at the former College of the Bahamas, now University of Bahamas, um, where I majored in biology, minor in agriculture. I completed my um, Bachelor of Science studies at the Tuskegee University in Alabama, master's degree at the University of Florida in Gainesville, where I began my uh, specialty of plant micropropagation or tissue culture. And from there, you know, I was sick of academia and decided to take a year or two off to work. And I did an internship at Fairchild, Fairchild Tropical Botanical Garden in Miami, Florida followed by one year, a year and a half working at um, Carrie's Vermilion Nursery and Homestead. It's a large um, ornamental production facility that produces millions of orchids and vermilions for the Home Depot market. Um, and once that got boring, <laughs> I decided to return to university where I completed a PhD in horticulture at the University of Georgia in Athens. And my I continued with the technique of plant micropropagation and um, tissue culture, but also uh, using a medicinal plant to North America. And I, once I was done studying, came back home and worked at Lucayne Tropical Produce for a while. There I established um, the nation's first tissue culture plant, tissue culture micropropagation laboratory. Um, unfortunately, that did not advance beyond um, a couple years. The mere fact that technology produces more plants than our market was able to absorb. So that product was discontinued. And then um, I returned to food production and um, established Field to Fork Community Farm on a small scale. And that's what I've been doing up to now. Mixed vegetable organic production. That's very exciting. I know we have a comment uh, from Lino saying hi. 
Hello, Dr. Lino. No. <laughs> yeah, so I know the, the heading of it is hydroponics and propagation. But before we dive into the propagation, you said you've done a little, a little bit of work in hydroponics and you have some general knowledge of it. So can you explain for the people that I'm out there? <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, so hydroponics for dummies or hydroponics 101. If we think about the way plants grow, um, naturally plants are, um, grow in the earth, in the soil, in the ground, the roots extend into the ground, um, the air, and then there are aerial parts, stems, leaves, branches, trunks, if it's a tree, and the roots are responsible for taking up water and nutrients and holding the plant in place um, so it doesn't get washed away or blown away. And the leaves are above ground to catch the sun's rays and photosynthesize to create food, uh, et cetera. Now, in the case of um, hydroponics, that whole process is happening in the absence of soil. Uh, we, are, we pull away the soil, the earth, and we are simply supporting the plant um, from a nutrient standpoint uh, from, solely in water. So the plant's roots are growing in water where it takes up all the nutrients out and also you know, absorbs the water it needs for so photosynthesis and support is provided um, by packing the roots. The roots are able to grow around large gravel or um, coir blocks, you know, some sort of substrate. But there is no soil in hydroponics. So simply put, hydroponics is plant production or plant growth in the absence of soil. Interesting. And so, and this may even be probably a silly question because there may not be any comparisons, but what is the difference between the concept of hydroponics and propagation? So hydroponics is the, actual, the, the process used to grow or produce um, plants or plants, uh, the system in which plants are cultivated and propagation is the technique of multiplying plants. So they're essentially quite different um, uh, aspects of, of horticulture. Interesting. And I know you were telling me a bit earlier, you had some diagrams of people who are interested in doing home hydroponics. So before we deep dive into propagation, do you want to maybe show us some of that, like how someone can maybe set up their own hydroponic system at home to grow some vegetables? Sure. So um, the company that I worked for, that I was f first exposed to hydroponics on a commercial scale is Lucine Tropical Produce, which was established oh boy, I don't know, 15, 17 years ago, um, right here in New Providence, they, you surely um, would see their product in grocery stores around town. They are producers, commercial producers of tomatoes and um, some peppers and cucumbers and also leafy salad greens. So um, those long uh, plastic wrapped European cucumbers, those are locally, well, Hopefully, <laughs> your your the grocery store you go to supports a local producer, and they um, often would sell the Lucayan hothouse or English cucumbers. Now, the the system that they use is highly technical and very advanced because, of course, they're growing um, in a protective structure on seven acres or five acres of production. I think so. That's a massive venture. Um, other aquapon uh, hydroponic related growers around there's Bluefields Farms that uses aquaponics, which is, um, I guess, a method of hydroponics where the, the nutrients provided to the plants are provided, are given um, from the fish that their excrement in the water provides the nitrates, et cetera, that plant needs. Now, all that being said, you do not have to have a, a fancy facility to grow hydroponically at home. Um, simple equipment that you would use. I will share my screen to show you this uh, easy system that you can do that you can do at home. Now, what we are looking at here um, is a Rubbermaid tote with a cover. So can you see my mouse yes. the arrow? Okay. So the base 
of the toad is filled with the nutrient solution. So it's water and for the nutrient solution, simply you can get a soluble fertilizer such as miracle Grow. but what you need to be uh, careful of or you need to ensure by reading the label that it also contains micronutrients. Mm -hmm. um, many soluble uh, commercially available fertilizers um, that are soluble would have nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, the NPK, and maybe a few other macronutrients. But in order for the plant to grow um, as successfully as possible, do you get the best results? You have to make sure that the micronutrients are are included as well. And it would state so on the label, boron, manganese, et cetera, molybdenum. Mm -hmm. So um, that nutrient solution with the soluble fertilizers in there. If you look here, um, this is an aquarium air pump. So easy to find. Um, we have a number of garden centers around the island that um, also have aquarium, that also offer aquarium supplies. And you can get this. It has an air stone at the end. Um, it's difficult for me to tell, but this is feeding into, um, into the bin. And why is that important? Because plant roots need um, need oxygen. They, they need to be aerated in order to function and grow properly. So you need to make sure that the water is aerated by using um, a simple aquarium air pump uh, that goes in and there's an air stone. Now this, pay attention to the, to the website. And also you can just do a simple search of DIY home hydroponic systems um, because there's definitely this rig here is special to this particular unit because if you put the tube in and put the lid on, then it constricts the tubing and you don't get the air. So this is something special there that um, somehow uh, that prevents the tubing from being from being constricted. And what they did was to simply cut holes in the top. And depending on what you're growing and the size of the plant um, would determine the size of the holes, the size of the pot you're using. And these pot inserts are baskets, uh, kind of, I, I don't want to say a net basket, or it's not a simple plant, um, plastic plant pot, although you could use those, but you'd need to to add um, some more holes, cut some more holes in it so the roots are able to grow out right. um, better. And instead of soil or dirt or peat moss, ideally this medium that the plant is growing in should be some sort of gravel, large gravel. Um, I, I wouldn't use pea rock because uh, it's lime, so I am sure it would work, but that might tip your calcium content in the media off. Um, but lava rock, which is an inert material, you could also find those in um, garden centers or aquarium stones, gravel stones you could find. And, and you set it in and over a period of time at regular intervals, you would have to change the water or top off the, the nutrients. So this is a simple, simple system that anybody can do. It doesn't have to be a Rubbermaid tote. It could be a five gallon basket with a plastic colander set in the top filled with gravel. I've made that one before. Um, and then the aquarium stone in the bottom. So lots of fun ways that you could um, grow hydroponically at home. Now, for greatest success, what are some of the plants that would do best in a system like this? Next question. <laughs> so I, Exactly. No, technically anything can, right? But if this is your first time trying, I would recommend starting with lettuce. Um, first of all, choose plants that you know you are going to eat, you know, that are vegetables that you're going to eat, that you're going to enjoy. Um, and things that are easy with a fast turnaround would be lettuce because you could, arugula, you uh, sprinkle them on the top, germinate it, plant it, put it in the in the gravel and in less than a month, in about three weeks, you would, in the case of arugula, you would have a harvestable plant. And in that case, you could cut and come again. You don't, ha you don't have to harvest the whole thing at once and then start all over again with seeds, but you could just take the outer leaves, 
And every day you'd want to have a salad, just pick some leaves and the plant continues to grow. Eventually it'll, it'll get spent and, and you would need to replace it. But to maximize the amount of harvest that you could get from um, your plantings, that would be a good way to do it. I'm going to scroll up so you could see the title of this um, website. Uh, rural Living Gardening Hydroponics Generators, et cetera. So this is just um, one of many that you could find. Um, this system here is a commercial system um, yeah. it, grown in gutters. It's, it's the nutrient film technique. So the plants, rather than these gutters don't get uh, filled with water, water is being dripped in on one end and it, um, these are on a little bit of a, a slant. So the water runs down in a thin film on the bottom and the leaves take it up. And yeah, this is a, a, another DIY of the above that you could do. These are PVC pipes, probably four to six inch pipes that but you'd have to have quite a bit of um, tools to make this because you would have to make these holes in the top. Or if um, simply you could just cut the whole top off so you have a trough. And, but that requires a um, little bit more materials because you need to make a frame to hold the, the troughs. So you, now you're also adding woodworking to the system. But there are a number, a number, gratefully, this is a breakdown of that system, a number of um, options for you to do. Somebody who is who's pretty handy and can uh, invest in these resources. The, the reservoir tank that holds the nutrients is also simple, like Rubbermaid tote. And um, there's a pump in there because it has to pump the liquid up to the top and it just drains down this little, this fancy maze and then it returns back to the system. And with that, you wouldn't need an oxygenator anymore, correct? Exactly, exactly. So that's the the, the point of this type system or the, this system. Um, the water is constantly flowing, so it's being aerated as it moves throughout the system. You don't need, um, you don't need a bubbler. Definitely. I know one of our viewers is asking if we can post a link in the comments. If you can send me that in the chat, I'll be able to shoot that over to the Certainly. Facebook. Certainly. This is definitely, they're also fascinated that you can get arugula in three weeks. And that actually, oh, yeah. cool. I didn't know they grew so fast. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Some, some things, arugula is really fast, especially in our warm climate. You know, th it, our climate is so warm that plants grow so fast. Um, radishes can be finished in three weeks. You know, if, if you're, I don't know how well they would do um, hydroponically, but certainly in the ground, you could within, in less than a month, be harvesting a, a really delicious salad. Yeah, clearly. And so as a question, could spinach work with hydroponics? And that's one of my favorite leafy greens. Yeah, yeah. But how long would that take? Absolutely, spinach all does well. Um, now the variety that we grow or that can be grown in our climate well, and that is also suitable to hydroponics is it's tatsoi spinach. It's not a true spinach. It is in the mustard family. So it's more closely related to bok choy, mm. um, cabbage, broccoli, but um, it's consumed as a spinach in, in much of the tropical um, regions. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't have much experience with the true spinach because, you know, we tried it growing it in the ground here and our soils are pretty tough. Um, on that variety. So, but I'm, I'm sure that would grow as well. That, that, as a matter of fact, the true spinach would probably, that, that the best chance you could have of growing it well in our climate, in our environment is hydroponically because it's not fighting with the high pH of our soils. Um, you could give it the nutrients, the exact nutrients it needs in the hydroponic solution. That's so exciting. And I know earlier we had a viewer ask, is this similar to an air plant? I know air plants don't need soil. Um, can you maybe quickly talk about the differences between how an air plant functions and how a plant in hydroponics would function? Okay, that's a great question. So air plants like Tillandsia, which are, are not sure if they're native or naturalized, but anyway, it's a common bromeliad that, that certainly you could see if you go trekking through the bushes here. Um, they are epiphytes, an epi 
phytes, those are simply plants that grow, they don't grow in soil, they grow attached to trees or other structures in the air. Now, the difference is that epiphytes attain their nutrients not necessarily, and the water not necessarily through roots. Um, largely roots are used to attach as an attachment or a support mechanism. Um, and water and nutrients are absorbed through the leaves, either in, you know, in the vase um, as water and debris collects in it. Uh, so physiologically, they, they uh, survive differently than plants grown hydroponically. So hydroponic plants that are grown in hydroponics can exist, can uh, grow normally in soil, in the ground, whereas epiphytes, some epiphytes you may be able to get them to grow in the ground, but they don't need to be in the ground to thrive. They actually prefer to be attached to a structure up in the air as opposed to in the soil. Wow, plants are so diverse. I feel like I learn about new types of plants all the time, like and the fact that some love water and some are okay with just a splash of water, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, diversity. It's really fascinating. You know, over millennia, they've developed um, methods of survival. You know, it's essentially survival of the fittest, how these um, mechanisms to survive uh, evolve. Definitely. So let's talk a little bit about the work you do in propagation. I know you have Field to Fork Community Farm. Um, can you talk a little bit about, are you doing seed propagation there? Are you still doing some of the, I think you said tissue culture was the word? Tissue you culture, micropropagation, yeah. So um, my the, my first stint in, in, in graduate school, I was introduced to, I took on the technology of um, plant micropropagation or tissue culture, which essentially in simple terms is plant cloning. Um, this technology is like the basis of all plant biotechnology because anything um, that happens in the world of plant biotechnology is usually using this um, system of growing plant, either whole plants or plant cells or plant tissues. And the reason why that this is even possible is because plants um, naturally are totipotent. And that word just simply means that each plant cell has the, all of the genetic information necessary to produce an entirely new plant. In animals, it's not the case. So in animals, um, if you get a human skin cell, and put it on a Petri dish and try to multiply it, you're never gonna get an, a whole new human from that skin cell. Um, those cells only contain the genetic information to reproduce itself. Um, the, the closest comparison in an animal system to a plant cell would be stem cells. Stem cells have a little bit more fluidity, a little more flexibility into becoming different um, differentiated cells. But in, in plants, any, part, any plant cell can be generated into a whole plant. So in, in plant tissue culture and micropropagation, we would either get a piece of a plant, whether it's the leaf, the root, the stem, or the actual seed, um, or the growing point of a plant and sterilize it, because this is all done under aseptic conditions. You, you need to make sure that the environment in which the plant is growing is sterile and it's growing, growing on sterile media. So instead of soil, which is this rich dynamic um, body of microbes and you know, my, my, not only microbes, but macrobes, large insects and worms, et cetera, um, the media in plant micropropagation is really sterile jello with sugar <laughs> and no coloring. So oh. we make, yeah, exactly. We make this batch of jello and sometimes it contains, um, sometimes it contains different hormones depending on what you want the plant tissue to do. Um, if I wanted to reproduce a, a bunch of different shoots, which in the end I would separate and grow up into plants, or if I just wanted to make plant cells, or when I wanted to make roots, I add a different hormone to it. 
So it's really fascinating system. And because um, this is so specialized and so um, it's aseptic, it's sterile, and you need to control the conditions so closely, it's grown under artificial light and temperature. So in a plant tissue culture lab, it's usually in a, in a room with multiple shelves from floor to ceiling with fluorescent lights. Now I'm sure they're using um, LED lights um, that are on a timer to provide the exact photo period or the exact um, number of light hours that the plant needs to do what you want it to do. And an air conditioning system is involved somehow. So you could control the temperature to exactly what you need. So this is is really um, plant cloning or plant tissue culture babies. And um, the lab that I established, oh boy, more than eight years ago now. Actually, it was, I first started it uh, probably 11 or so um, years ago. Uh, we multiplied, we propagated a lot of native species, especially dune species for restoration. Uh, we did sea oats. Um, we also did some native orchids, uh, some of which I have uh, in trees here now that are blooming. So it's great to see that full cycle. In that case, because these, so these plants are protected, um, we just collected the seed pod. Now, this is a beauty of plant micropropagation or tissue culture is that you can, if you are dealing with a plant that's, that's rare or endangered or protected, you can use this as a system to make more of it without doing a destructive harvest. So with rather than instead of taking the whole orchid um, out of the wild and maybe dividing it into you know multiple pots and hoping you get you know some of them 10% to catch, you would you go and collect the seed pod, which in orchids contains the seeds in, or in an orchid seed pod is like talc powder. It re it, there are millions, probably even billions of seeds. Wow. So I don't even need to use the entire seed pod, but certainly you have to harvest the whole thing. You'll harvest the whole seed pod. And when it's dry and you open it, it's just like fine powder on the surface of the gel. And I swear to you, every one of them germinates. So from one seed pod in one vessel, I would have millions of orchid seedlings. And, and certainly I didn't have the capacity to deal with millions. So, you know, you sacrifice some, which is, is not um, that big of a loss because you did not harvest a plant. You got the seed yeah. pod and the plant is there to continue. Um, so it's really a fascinating technology. I hope, um, I look forward to maybe starting the lab up again. <laughs> Or, yeah, I, I think it's necessary because especially now as we are paying more cl close attention to um, producing more of our own food, uh, one of the other projects that we did was to micropropagate bananas, um, pineapples, which would then be sold to farmers to establish large acreages. Mm -hmm. So as you know, from bananas and um Pineapples, naturally, they vegetatively propagate, um, meaning you, or typically you would uh, propagate bananas by taking the suckers. Right. And usually there's like one or two suckers you could get from one plant um, over a very long period of time. Whereas if I were to take one sucker from a banana plant and go dissect it down to the, the apical meristem, which is like the, the smallest, um, growing point of the plant, from that plant, I could generate thousands, hundreds of thousands of plants over an extended period of time. Wow. Um, with pineapples, how do we do it? You cut the tops off and of the, of the fruit, or once it's flowered, it sends out these little plantlets, little pups, and you could plant those. But the same thing with the pineapple, you can get, you know, hundreds of thousands of times more than you would from one plant, um, that propagating it vegetatively. Yeah, and I love pineapples, and I've never been able to grow one. I always hear just cut the top off, and I've tried. I know. Tried with the local from Eleuthera. I just have the worst luck. Um, but we do have a question about. I know you started talking about some plants you can clip 
well, you were talking about obviously from the tissue level, but we have the question here, can all plants be grown from clippings? Because I know there's this whole thing where some plants you can literally cut a branch or just a twig and just stick it in the ground and it grows like the gamalami tree that my dad did that with. I'm still fascinated. Yes. yes. That the, the gamalami is a is a wonder from that standpoint. I mean, that plant is amazing. It's I the, the, it needs to be studied seriously <laughs> um, because it is a survivor. It is super resilient. Now that being said, yes, all plants could be um, propagated from cuttings or some form vegetatively. However, not it's not not all plants are readily propagated. Some, some plants it's easier than others. Some plants you would have to take the soft wood cuttings, others it's the hard wood cuttings. Some plants you could just use the leaf, others the leaf wouldn't work. You know, some plants propagate by, from the roots, like breadfruit. You would take cuttings, um, new shoots would sh shoot up from the, from the roots. So it depends on the species. And um, then you would have to determine which part of the plant is most readily uh, propagated in that particular way. Now, also to increase your chances of success, um, I would suggest that you may need to use a rooting hormone. And one of the most popular, most common ones that you could find commercially is called um, rutone. I think it's in a yellow and green and white jar. And you could find it at any um, uh, nursery center, garden center. And it essentially is a, it's a rooting hormone um, that you would add just a little bit and knock off the excess to the cutting and stick it in um, a media of choice. Usually you'd want to use a media that is um, well draining that doesn't stay super moist so you don't cause um, rotting mm -hmm. and you would have to make sure that the the plant um, the cutting it can stay moist so whether you cover it with a plastic dome and then the water just circulates in the dome and it maintains a certain level of humidity or if you have um, the ability to establish a misting bed where that's on a timer so at regular intervals throughout the day it would turn on and mist your cuttings to make sure that they don't dry out that is the biggest thing with um, propagation by cuttings is preventing well two things preventing um drying out or um microbial infection so could someone necessarily instead of having maybe one of those misting beds or a dome could they spray it regularly yeah, if if, if you if you could baby it through that phase by you know keeping a spray bottle near, I I think it's possible. But I think realistically, um, with all the things we have going on in our lives and and all the things we're juggling now, um, if you dome it or at, at the very least keep it in an area where there's not a constant flow of air, because the more air there is, the the more the more dry it will become, it'll dry out faster. So if you could keep it in, a, in the corner of a room where there is indirect light, um, as little ventilation as possible, that would help keep a nice microclimate around the, the cuttings where it's, it's humid enough to prevent the, ply, the plant from drying out, drying out, but not too humid to cause um, bacteria and fungi to take over. Right. Can you say the name of the hormone again? Or can you spell it if someone in the comments is asking about it? How would you say rutone? Rutone. Rutone. Um, ru uh, yeah, rutone is one of the brand names. The other, the most common brand no name that I was referring to actually is called Hormodin. H-O-R-M-O-D-I-N. Hormodin is the most popular brand. And rutone is another brand. But I don't see that around here as often as I do. Mode in. All right, awesome. And so I know I said earlier before we started the stream that you're the first female farmer, you know, that I've met. And I just wondered, have you met many other women in agriculture? Oh, totally. Locally. Yeah, absolutely. At one one year in my farm, my farm was run by four young women. It was amazing. And I, I really wanted to to like blast it out from the rooftops, rooftops. If you don't mind, I would love to mention their names. Of course. Um, so Kristen Brown, 
Um, she was at that point, she was the one who worked with me at the farm um, longest and uh, just amazing woman. I can't, I don't know how old she was at the time, but all of them were 23 and younger. So it was Kristen Brown, there was Jerry Kelly, who is currently working in the industry. Jerry has traveled around the world. She's worked in Rome for the FAO. I may be getting that wrong, but she's now back home um, working at the Ministry of Agriculture. Big ups to Jerry because um, she, you know, for people who invest their time into studying agriculture, I, I applaud them. You know, we don't get much support um, from our immediate families sometimes, or even just, you know, the government with, or just looking at the industry and saying, you know, should I invest my time and money in studying this? And she certainly did. She um, got a master's degree up to a master's degree. I'm not sure exactly which area. And then the third woman, um, in addition to myself, the third person was Jade Sands. And Jade Sands is now employed at the One Eleuthera Foundation, um, assisting also rock star Bahamian farmer Mike Lightborn in, in um, developing that farm. And Jade, I'd like to say, like Mark Daniels and many other young Bahamians interested in science, I robbed her from the jaws of other fields in science and brought her into the folds of agriculture. Um, she she was at um, UB, I, I'm not sure what her major was. She wasn't quite clear on what area, what field she was going into. And then after working on the farm, I think she got bitten by the bug and became interested in, in food production. And then beyond that, which is also very important and essential into food processing. So she now is aspiring to study food processing. Um, she was supposed to go off this fall, but of course, with COVID, this massive um, uh, inconvenience at the time with respect to enrolling in a university. So she is now employed at One Eleuthera Foundation in Roxana Eleuthera. And um, yeah, those are just four, four of the women that I have had the pleasure of working with at my farm. Other producers, um, older, older women who've been in the field for many years. One certainly is Teresa. Teresa Kelly, I think, I'm not sure, please. Teresa Camp, sorry, Teresa <laughs> Camp. Holy Farms, um, she was featured on Martha Stewart show. Oh, wow. Yeah, exactly. Um, she's been at it for a long time. Um, I wanna be very careful with naming more people because I, I could get bust upside my head for forgetting some people, but um, mm -hmm. certainly currently exhibiting, currently uh, set up at the farmer's market, there's Whitlin Miller. Whitlin is one of the most, creative cooks I have ever met. I mean, she grows a lot of good food using organic um, practices. Her The name of her farm is Sunset Organics. And whatever she cannot sell fresh, she will wave her magic culinary wand and turn it into something delicious and vegan or vegetarian, amazing, amazing. Um, and there's Natasha Adley, who is also quite um, creative. She makes a variety of uh, fruit wines. So, you know, in the summer, we have a tremendous amount of, of fruits that are not commercial or they're not being pro uh, produced in a commercial standpoint, um, but they grow readily and well without much input. And uh, for instance, dillies, guavas, ganeps, you know, sea grapes, all these things we take for granted, but they are edible and they could provide a, a significant amount of nutrition. Uh, Natasha, she not only sells some of those uh, fresh, but she also processes them. And, the, you know, tamarind sauce is one of our favorites, but she has a line of fruit wines. Uh, I'm going to stop there because I can't think of anybody else and I don't want to offend anybody. But certainly the field is is rich with um, producing women. And for that matter, globally, globally, women are leading the charge with small scale food production. You know, whether they're doing it on a subsistence level or as a business, women run the world <laughs> in food production. So. I want to encourage any anybody listening, you, you know, whether you're a guy or a gal, you know, 
producing our own food is very important. And, and especially as we see now, um, if you were employed in tourism and you're currently out of work, um, the one thing that you could be doing with all this time on your hands is setting up a small uh, vegetable garden and at least being able to provide food for yourself. Um, certainly in the times, the early first lockdown, you know, when everybody was sent home, I was able to continue working. Nothing changed much for me, you know, I was able to go into work and people really appreciated being able to have access to fresh, sustainably produced food. Right. So I highly encourage, you know, any of you watching, if you've ever been on the fence about it, to consider it strongly now. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that. I know Brianne is saying you forgot her. <laughs> Brianne! Oh, Brianne! I, how could I? Okay. <laughs> Brianne is also a rock star. She worked at Lucayan. Um, very cherry, very, and, and then she volunteered at my farm. And I am so grateful for the time you spent there, Brianne. And she's a champion for all that we're doing, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful for your support. And she's not directly in the industry now. However, <laughs> she, she supports it heavily. So yes, even, even if you, for whatever reason, cannot be involved in the industry directly, you know, there are lots of other ways that you could support local agriculture. Simply, the number one easiest one is just to buy local. You yeah. know, now the Gladstone Road Farmers Market has a tremendous amount of traction. They are open two days a week, Fridays and Saturdays, uh, I think from eight to three. So um, there, there's, there are options there. And, and I, I really encourage everyone to support our local producers. Yeah. And I know someone, Astrid in the comments is saying there is a group of rural women in agriculture called Ba and Rop. Ba and Rop. Yes, absolutely. Now, I, I have to confess, I have not been involved in um, Ba and Rop. So if um, Ajua wants to share more information on that. Certainly, I know AICO is also involved okay. somehow. So there are lots of organizations going on. At some point, for me as a producer, honestly, um, as much as I'd like to participate in, in these various organizations, at, at, a, at a point, I have to draw the line because it takes time away from um, the production side of it. Uh, and if I don't produce, I don't make money. I don't, you know pay bills and, and eat. So um, although I am not a member of, of any of the local or regional groups supporting women in agriculture, there are certainly a number of them. And you can contact um, the Inter-American Association for the Advancement of Ag Agriculture, IECA. I think I got the acronym wrong. In, <laughs> but it's, it's IECA, and they have a website, Facebook page. Shakara Lightborn, another amazing woman in agriculture. Oh, see, I knew I was going to get in trouble. There's a lot. There's, a lot. <laughs> there's so many others. Yeah. Um, she, she is, uh, pardon me if I'm giving her the wrong title, but the director of, of IECA here, the IECA office here. Um, there's a woman my age. Mon La Monica, she also grew. Um, she has, uh, I want to say, it's um, agribusiness uh, degree. And and then there's Dr. Patricia Grant, who is a food processor, um, food scientist. So it's it's oh. wide. You know, we're out there. Um, ask ask around. Talk to as many people as you can because this industry. If you don't necessarily want to be um, growing food outdoors or in a structure, you know we need we need people in lab we need in labs we need um, plant pathologists we need scientists who could help with the identification of plant diseases we need entomologists we need scientists who uh, study insects and it could help develop protocols for the control of insect pests. We need soil scientists. Every year before I plant, I get my soil, um, I send my soil off to be analyzed in a lab to tell me what I need to amend the soil with so it is strong and fertile, enabled, uh, enabling me to grow successfully over the next season. Um, we need food scientists, people who can um, devise ways of processing fresh foods into 
foods that are shelf stable that we can store and 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 ship around the world. We need agricultural engineers, people who could design um, machinery to make the job easier. I mean, there are hundreds of careers in the field of agriculture, and certainly, if you are on the fence at all, there is one niche there that you can fill. Yeah, and I know one of the things we talked about on the last episode about aquaponics and aquaculture is there also isn't necessarily a need for people to go straight into having to chase these degrees. There are a lot of technical skills that came with that. And I'm sure even with this, there are a lot of technical skills that people can do right out of high school to get them started in this rather than having to feel the pressure of going off and trying to get all the way to PhD level. Um, so it's definitely important for people to realize that. Um, Absolutely. I know yeah. I yeah. Time. I know the prime minister's address is on. I'm not sure if you're trying to catch it, but no. through, the, through the lens of climate change, I know the Sustainable Lifestyle Group you know, they're doing their 100K tree planting initiative this year. And just to help promote that, can you say some of the important reasons on why Bahamians should be getting into propagation and into planting, even if it's not for like their livelihood, why would it be just good to have plants in your yard and plant trees? Oh, oh you got me on my other soapbox. <laughs> okay, so with respect to climate change, let's deal with that first, because we all know firsthand if, if, if anybody in the world is most vulnerable, it's people like, you know, in countries like ours on um, small island developing states. We, you know, and what's interesting is we are probably most vulnerable, but we contribute to the problem the least, right? Mm -hmm. So globally, we need to attack this, but let's look at what the individuals could do to help. Now, I just watched a documentary, it's on Netflix, the the American version, if you, depending, I don't think it's available if you have the um, Latin American version. Anyway, it's called Kiss the Earth. And what I found interesting, um, there was a scientist featured that really gave a hopeful, a very hopeful um, solution to reversing or at least halting climate change. Now, as we know, we talked about plants growing in the ground and their roots now and, and, and all of the, the living organisms that exist in soil. Beyond just providing nutrition to the plants, these billions of microbes in the soil help sequester carbon. And by planting trees or protecting the soil and making sure soil is never left bare, that we plant it, whether it's with grasses or trees or shrubs, we are pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere that if hopefully the soil is healthy and healthy and rich in microbes, the carbon is sequestered in the soil and kept there. So I, again, back to this documentary, this particular science scientist, oh, I hope I get it right. But I think he said it, by 2050, if we plant X amount of earth, if we revegetate it, we could break even. Now, all, I'm saying all of this to say, please watch the documentary because it gives a very hopeful solution. Um, we would be able to sequester at, at the very least sequester the carbon that we are producing on a daily basis. That's what I recall from it. The details could be a little sketchy, but essentially we could solve the problem or at least mitigate it heavily by planting um, a lot more trees. So kudos to the, um, the Sustainability Lifestyle Group. Did I get it right? Oh, yeah. Sustain your belly. Sustain your belly. Sustain your belly, people, and plant trees. Now, that's, that's. I mean, we don't have to get in an argument there. It is what it is. Plant trees. Trees eat carbon, and they lock it away, right? So we're not. it's not in the air creating heat. Now, let's go back to the benefits to us as living beings of why we should be surrounding ourselves with trees and plants. Now, there are more than 30 years of research, and I've been um, really interested in this of late. Um, I first came across the research oh, probably about 15, 20 years ago when I was in um, graduate school, school pursuing my PhD. There was one study that really opened my eyes. Um, some environmental psychologists, can you believe there is such a job? 
how awesome would that be? They did studies to determine the benefits or the effects of nature exposure or exposure to green environments on human beings. And to wrap it up into a small little package to sum up, you know, hundreds, thousands of scientific uh, studies that regular exposure to green environments, whether it's a green, a park with grass and trees like Goodman's Bay, where I see many people exercising there regularly, or the strip around Pahamar, or if it's um, the primeval forest that I love going to, that every Bahamian yeah, should have the opportunity to experience. You should all put that on the top of your bucket list, go to the primeval forest or the retreat on Village Road. We have, you know, we're living in a city, but we are still surrounded by um, quite a few lovely green spaces. Back to the studies. Exposure to green environments improves um, our, our mental and our social well-being. Now, I will just break it down each one of those things. Physical, how does regular exposure to green environments improve my physical well-being, my health? Well, just a few um, data points. They have shown that um, exposure to green environments after a walk in the forest, um, taking blood samples, your natural killer cells, the amount of natural killer cells in your body. And these are cells that are part of our immune system that seek out cancer cells and gobble them up. You increase the amount of natural killer cells in your body after a walk in the forest. Um, other things, you shift from uh, sympathetic nervous system, which is fight or flight, mm -hmm. you know, stress, high cortisol, you know, high blood pressure, to parasympathetic, which is instead of uh, fight or flight, it's rest and digest or tend and befriend. You know, this is a, the the state that you go into when you're after you've meditated. You're you actually experience that shift after um, a walk in the forest, in the woods. You know, um, in a green environment. Another other um, your heart rate drops. You know, all of these all of these um, markers that are common in our stressful modern day lives are ameliorated by, by spending time in nature. That's the physical. And I didn't even go, and that's only the tip of the iceberg. You know, I could, we'll be here all night. You know, they've shown that uh, your attention um, improves people with, with attention disorders, ADD, ADHD, their mm -hmm. symptoms improve after having um, exposure to green environments. You're able to pay attention better. So that's what recess and lunch are about. You know, Recess and lunch should not only be about getting outside and eating or playing, but kids <laughs> need, yeah, they need to de-stress. If you are writing a dissertation or a thesis, and you're inside staring at a blue screen all the time, get outside and walk in the trees. It will help you to um, be able to pay attention more. That's physical. Um, well, that's physical and mental. Yeah. Um, the social, the social, well, they, there was a landmark study, like this is one of the, the most popular studies that um, is referred to um, with respect to social well-being. Uh, housing community in Chicago, one of the rough areas of Chicago, two um, housing developments identical in size, structure, layout, number of families. Families were randomly assigned to these structures, so they already had randomization there. The only difference was that one had a green courtyard, grass and trees, and one had no vegetation. And it is reported, documented, even by um, police records, that their higher the higher rates of crime were experienced in the non-green building compared to the green building. Um, Nate neighbors uh, reported feeling more safe um, in the green building than the non-green building. Occupants also uh, reported having better relationships with their neighbors. They knew their neighbors. They interacted with them more. 
They trusted their neighbors. They felt that, you know, if I, if I got busy and I needed somebody to watch my kids, they felt safer in the green um, building as composed to non-green. So I think in this, especially on this island, if you go to other um, family islands, they are largely green, right? There's, there's this carpet of green everywhere. You drive down the road, you're just seeing bush, bush, bush. But certainly in Nassau, where it's more developed, more congested, we need for future development to institute in our future development plan, make it legal, I mean, make it, make it a law, please, that any building structure that will be inhabited by human beings, and that's all structures, that a certain percentage of green space is maintained or um, redeveloped on that plot of line. I it breaks my heart to see developments, whether it be whether it is simple residential, a house, or schools. That is the worst thing. I mean, that infuriates me to drive by schools and see nothing but asphalt or pavement. Not a tree in sight, no grass. What are you doing? Like, like these a- kids it's so it's such a sterile environment. It's not good for their their mental um, activity. How could they fun- function at a high cognitive level in an environment like that? That has to be instituted, you know, as a necessity. We cannot have schools with no green spaces. So again, sustain your belly, people. Follow them. Support them. Honestly, my yard now, I don't have any more space to put plants. I have I have a virtual coppice forest in my front yard. And another benefit of that is, you know, in the summer when everybody is racing indoors to be in the air conditioning, I could be outside in the tree in a hammock at two o'clock in the afternoon and I am comfortable. Yes. So w- w- this is about providing a, a perfect human Habitat, Damn. habitat restoration theory. That that's um, one of the theories that brought one of the um, researchers who does most of this research uh, to study this. There is such a thing as habitat restoration theory, and this is how the zoos of 50 years ago became the zoos we see today because they realized that when you place an animal in a habitat that is significantly different from where it evolved, from where they collected the animal, that it does not thrive. You know, it gets sick, it's depressed, it, it does not thrive. And they were losing, you know, so many exotic endangered species because they were in the wrong habitat. And the same happens with humans. When we are placed, you know, whether you are a creationist or you subscribe to evolution, that's not the discussion I'm having here. What I'm trying to say is that recent, the amount of time we as as humans have spent in urban environments is like, if you compare all of human history to 24 hours, it's probably like 30 seconds to midnight that we've been in urban environments. Much of our lives we have spent in nature in jungles, on savannas, wherever it is, we were in nature. And what what scientists, even medical doctors are now realizing is that when we are pulled out of that natural habitat and we are put in in unfit habitats, such as large metropolises, without access to to, um, natural environments, we we fail. Whether it's health-wise, socially, or mentally, there's decline of well-being. Um, as simple as our immune system. Do you know that our immune system is recharged just by being in nature? You know, 70% of our immune system um, is conferred by the millions, billions of, of microbes in our gut. And how do they get in and on our bodies? You know, we need these to live. We're in a pandemic now, and I promise you, if you have a healthy gut flora, you would not be struggling if you were to contract COVID because you would have the immune system in place to deal with that um, mm-hmm. that virus. But um, because we evolved in nature or we, we've been in nature for m- most of our history, 
we much of our health is conferred by all of these microorganisms that we come into in come encounter with, whether it's through eating it in the foods, you know, you're not buying something in the grocery store that was irradiated yeah. when it came here. You're you're eating something from the ground that inevitably is charged with bacteria and fungi, and your body figures out which ones to keep and which ones to kick out. Yeah. Um, or just being outside and breathing it in. You know, there's a um, another physician who is big on this. His name is Dr. Zach Bush. He's like a rock star to me right now um, for his work in, in, in the benefits or the importance of microbes in our lives. And I, I promise you, you know, it concerns me. I know we're in a pandemic and we have to protect the least vulnerable, the most vulnerable amongst us. Yeah. But our heavy use of hand sanitizers and, and fogging buildings and creating these sterile environments just to protect us from COVID, from one virus, yeah. is going to affect negatively our immune system. So during this time, as we are washing hands and hand sanitizing and being fogged, you need to make sure that you are spending as much time outdoors recharging your immune system with the beneficial bacteria that yeah. you need to be healthy. So I will step off my my soapbox, Vashanti. I'm sorry, but I just had to get that out. Yeah, that was great because I know I definitely heard um, while I was home, my dad said he watched some news article story on the TV where doctors are saying, if you can, if you feel like you're getting sick or if you have the virus and you can get outside into your yard, just get into a green space because they found that the people that are still going outside during this time are the ones that either recover quickly or don't get impacted as bad or they're the asymptomatic ones because their body wow. is just dealing with it. Yeah. And so but I was like, so make sure you go outside every day, get off that computer doing your paper, like get outside. And so I'd always <laughs> Like, okay, fine. And I go outside barefoot because I feel like yes. it's important to do that. Just barefoot into the dirt and like just reconnect with nature, which is so important. I think as humans over time, we just constantly um, feel like we're not a part of nature. We continue to separate ourselves from nature. We build walls, we build fences, we cut down trees and we forget that this is this is what we used to be. And, and we're getting worse because we're taking something so crucial and essential away. So everything you said is spot on. Like I, I'm so happy I got to have you on this show. This is so amazing. You've been so great. And before we wrap up, I know it's, it's already three past the hour. Can you just quickly um, do it with a promo for your farm, Field of Four Community Farm? Like how can people get there? Are you selling only at the farmer's market? Like if someone wants to get in touch with you, maybe even to volunteer even, like how can, how can people connect with you and Field to Fork Community Farm? Well, Lashanti, you've put me on a bit of a spot because. <laughs> um, so, I'm you know, so <laughs> this is not an official announcement, but we have been telling people now. Field of Fork has been um, in operation officially uh, registered business since 2012, and our aim, our mission, was to grow food sustainably. Um, to protect consumer health and the health of the environment. And that's certainly something that, you know, that we, we strongly believe in and we will never stop doing. And it's especially to provide, to be able to increase the amount of food that we have locally and to reduce the amount of imports. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, um, my husband and I, Tim, who is my business partner, co-founder of Field to Fork, we will be joining forces with the One in Luthra Foundation um, next year, yeah, on a full-time basis. And in the meantime, we are currently working with them part-time to help. The whole effort is to help them further develop their uh, farm and agriculture program there. They have an amazing um, Learn to Earn program at the Career Training Institute, which um, gives students a stipend to learn a trade. They have um, promoted and, and trained young people in uh, electrical installations, plumbing, solar, just a number. It's, it's an amazing program. And they also have an agriculture learn and earn. 
So we will be there to join the team of Mike Lightburn, um, amazing farmer from another young farmer, my age in mid to late 40s, uh, from Abaco who's there. And as I said, Jade just joined there. But the reason we are joining them is because their philosophy and their objectives align very strongly with ours. So we recognize it will be, we will be deeply missed here in Nassau. I know it's, it's not going to be easy to hear from my, my farmer's market um, regulars that they can't get good lettuce, but there are other people growing out there. I'm not the only one people. So um, yes, uh, so unfortunately, or unfortunately this season, um, Fields of Work will, will not be in production, um, but there are other farmers out there at the farmer's market weekly um, with great products. So. In the meantime, yeah, we feel we feel our um, joining Juan and Luthra will do more to advance Bahamian agriculture than we could do by ourselves at this time. And as you know, we are in a critical period with our main source of, of national revenue being non-existent. We need to, to have secure means of food production. And that is why we are joining the One Eleuthera team because we feel we could make a greater impact in a shorter period of time um, with them than on our own. That sounds so exciting. And I, every person I've spoken to so far, even on this show or outside of this, I always say, mark my words, when I finish school and I'm finally ready to settle back in the Bahamas, I'm going to Luthra. So the fact that you just said that, I'm coming in. By the time I get there, I'm going to have fresh pineapples all year round because it's always available two months out of the year. And I always get so sad because it's like, man, it's November. I would really like some Eleutheran pineapple right now. I'm so excited. That's such great news. And I do think Eleuthera is a very fertile island. And I know Mark has talked about it before in past episodes that that is one of the few islands that has really, really good soil. So I have no doubt that you and Tim will do great. And I'm excited to actually see how that goes. And we might even have you back on one day and maybe I'll have a pineapple too, right? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Totally. And then, you know, what our, our, our efforts there will, will, we hope to churn out more young farmers that can go to Cat Island and Exuma and come to Nassau and, you know, throughout the country. So every island has an amazing farm with um, producing organic produce. Definitely. Yeah, it's, it's so important. Oh, man, I'm so excited for you guys. I'm excited to see what happens soon with the One Eleuthera Foundation. Thank you. Thank you. Doesn't seem like we have any comments, any questions. Do you have any final thoughts for the Bahamian people and the people of the world who are listening from many different places right now? Well, I would like to say at this time, especially, I think certainly the greatest concern that we are all dealing with is, is this pandemic. And, and I would like to leave you with the fact that our bodies are amazing at healing ourselves. And when we are providing it with the best fuel possible, we can make it through the worst of, of diseases or ailments. So at this time, and, and, and as I said, Eat a lot of plants because plants are rich in phytonutrients and phytochemicals that, that support your health. And also spend time with a lot of plants because it will help maintain your emotional and mental sanity. So plants all around, whether you're eating them, well, I'm not even gonna give you an option. Eat them and spend time in them. Yes, that's a good one. Eat them and spend time in them, definitely. And as I always say, guys, remember, it's not the ocean that separates us. It connects us. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Siren Sundays, and I will see you soon. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye.